first sentence. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm are not for us. It says resentment is the number one offender. But I've heard others say also that they drank because they got so angry. I mean, not the resentment. The resentment comes after the anger. A resentment is to refill over and over and over. That's after the initial anger. But the anger is the flare-up right then. And always, for me, anger is just a surface emotion, a surface feeling. There's always something going on underneath it. And most of the time, it's fear for me. That's just something that I've come to know in my own sobriety. Um, You know, normal people has a process uh, that goes through their brains. They feel, they think, and then they act. And alcoholics feel, then they act, then they think about what they did. And it's too late because we have already acted on the anger. And that's just another example of our thought process just not working like it's supposed to. And so this process helps us to do that. Bill talks in, uh, as Bill sees it, He talks about restraint, and that's another gift that was given to me. You know, one of the the greatest things is to be able to just not react, just just to have some restraint, to give that process to take place within my own mind, that I, even though no matter what's going on with me and what I'm feeling, to give, you know, give me some time to think about what I'm going to do next. And not just go fly off the handle and, and act on that. At the bottom of the page, we realize that people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. This is a principle. And on the next page, in case, this is a prayer for all of you people who think the way to get rid of a resentment is to pray for the person that you have a resentment at. The prayer for resentment is a prayer for us. And this is the prayer for resentments. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Now, when I, have, when I am angry with someone, or if I have a resentment against someone, this prayer is for me, and it tells me that I pray And I ask God to show me how I can be helpful to this person. Most of the time, I don't want to be helpful to a person I have resentment against. I mean, there's other things I'd rather do than help someone that I have a resentment against. But it says that I don't have to decide what kind of help that I'm going to give this friend. I ask God to show me how I can be helpful. 
And sometimes what God shows me is just stay away from them, you know. I don't need to be in their face. And just being away from them sometimes helps the resentment if it's not, if I'm not faced with it all the time. But this goes on in a, you know, on a, sometimes it's a daily part of my, uh, of my meditation, my prayer and meditation that I, I can pray this. And always I have to remember that my prayers are for his will. Because I really don't know whether I have a resentment or not, uh, just how I can be helpful. It's several places in the book it talks about how we ask God to show us how we can be helpful to others. And the way that he's done that for me is, especially with my children, when they come to me, if anything is going on in their life or if it's someone that I sponsor, I don't try to figure out what I can do to help them. I let them tell me. And I ask them, what part would you like for me to play in this? You tell me, how can I help you? And sometimes the only help they want is just for me to listen. They might call and say, have you got time to talk? But what they really mean is, do you have time to listen? (laughs) So today I try to have time to listen. Here is a principle in the next paragraph after the prayer that's just, I mean, talk about a tool. And uh, it says, we avoid retaliation or argument. This has been a wonderful tool in my service work. And I'm sure anyone who has worked in general service has heard that expression, principles before personalities. I think this is one they're talking about. We cannot be helpful to all people. You know, some people I'm not going to be able to help at all. I have to remember that. Especially the ones that come and then go out and drink again. This helps in my sponsorship for people who really just want to hang on and don't want to do anything. You know, maybe I'm not the one for them. And this, this is something that I have to remember. Maybe I'm not the one for them. And I do them a disjustice if I continue to hang on to them. I am the one, hopefully, that's the healthier of the two. And I can say, you know, I think what I'm doing is not working. Maybe you should find another sponsor. I'll even be willing to help you do that. But any time that I think that I'm all things to everyone or that I can help everyone, then there's something wrong with my ego still. Then the prayer is, God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. And we can, I mean, the promise is that if we can, can say this prayer and then follow these principles... That maybe, you know, I'm not going to love everybody, but everyone that comes into my life, I'll be able to have a kinder and more tolerant view of them. We say all the time that maybe we don't love everybody here in these rooms. I mean, maybe we don't like everybody, but we love them as, as, a, as a human being. But I think a lot of times what we really do is tolerate before that love can come. You know, it's hard to have patience and tolerance with someone that, you know, you're sitting in a meeting and someone's rambling on about a bunch of garbage, you know, and you've got to sit there and listen, but and not get up and leave. I, I don't get up and leave often, but I have gotten up and left. <clears throat> I remember the first time I did that, I was with Donna. <laughs> I said, I'm out of here. She said, what? 
I couldn't tell I was in an AA meeting. I thought I was in the wrong place. I'd got the wrong address. Okay, page 68. The second paragraph talks about the keystone again. And it says, uh, I want to read the paragraph before because the next paragraph refers to it. It says, we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them. This is in our fear inventory. Uh, We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully resolve our fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Then we refer, uh, they're referring to that paragraph. It says, perhaps there is a better way. We think so. And what he means is there's a better way to deal with fear. And this is how he's telling us there's a better way. And the reason why there's a better way is because for now we are on a different basis. And that's the keystone, that concept that we have now. The basis of trusting and relying on God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. So we're in the fourth step, but we're using this keystone, this concept now, in the fourth step that, we, that we've already gotten. And right after, in the same sentence, it says, um, Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? I hear a lot about the balance in our life, in our program. You know, we've got to balance all that. Uh, Right here, I think that this tells me that God's going to balance my life. This is the balance that I have in my life today that comes from God. He enables me to match calamity with serenity. And any time I can do that, there's a balance in my life. And he provides that. I don't do that for myself. I'm unable to do that. I never could do that. And I can't do that today. That's, that's strictly just a gift that's been, been given to me. Just grace from, from my God. Right after that is another principle. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. And then in the middle of that paragraph is a promise. All men of faith have courage. I know today that my father, growing up, had more spirituality in his little finger (laughs) than I had in my whole being. And I saw this man as uh, weak. And... uh, And that's because he lived a spiritual life and relied on God. And when things were not right, he didn't get upset about it. He knew that all he had to do was um, 
just continue to live that spiritual life and do the things that uh, live the life that God would have him live. And people, I thought, would take advantage of him a lot of times. And I thought, well, he ought to tell them off or, you know, do something about it. He never knew how to say no when it came to uh, uh, helping someone else. And it wasn't until he was gone that I know that he was a thoroughly happy man. And he died a happy man. Because that was his life. I didn't really learn about that until I got here. But you see, my dad lived a life of service. (laughs) And it tells us that that's all I have to do today is just be of service. And that's the life that he was living. When I was about 13, 12 or 13 was the first time, the only time that I know of that I I heard the words Alcoholics Anonymous. And it came from my father. And it was in reference to an uncle of mine that had a problem with alcohol. And he made the statement, you know, there's somewhere he could go to get help. And I said, where? And he said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I never remember ever hearing that and never thought of it again until I got here. But as far as I knew, until I did get here, I had never heard it again. And this was something that came to me after I was here for a little while. So I have reason to believe that my dad knew about Alcoholics Anonymous for, for a reason. Because uh, he lived a, a life before my life that was uh, sort of conducive to alcoholism. He, he didn't live a straight and narrow life. He lived a very uh, flamboyant life. And he did a lot of things that... Uh, that just sound like alcoholism to me now that I know. He married young and had three boys and his wife died and he remarried and uh, left her and had some more kids. And then he left his first three boys and left his last children. And by the time he got to my mother, he had like about three full families that we never knew. And he never saw again until they started showing up on the doorstep. <laughs> And I found out I had all these brothers and sisters. And I heard a lot of things about my dad. But you see, the only dad I knew was the dad that was there. And he was changed. He was a different man. He wasn't the same man that he had been in those days. And when they would talk about him, it was as though they were talking about someone else. And that's what's happened to me. When they talk about me today... And they talk about me back then, before I got here. It's as though they're talking about two different people. And I'm hearing things just like I heard about my dad. So I believe that my dad had been changed through a spiritual experience today. I have no doubt about that. And I know that he knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because he did mention it one time to me. The next part of the book... um, We have a little prayer in there uh, after that. And it says, uh, first it says, we never apologize for God. We let him demonstrate through us what he can do. Remember, we have a new employer now. Our job is just whatever he would have us do. So every day whenever I go out, I'm just going to be an instrument for God to use. And, uh, and I'm doing God's work now because I'm on a different footing. So anything that I thought might have been my job beforehand is not my job anymore. It's God's job. And so every day I just get up and I go out and I do God's work. 
And once once that concept can be achieved, no matter what we do to earn a living, if we look at it, if we can, uh, you know, accept that uh, concept, it makes whatever we do a lot e- a lot easier. Because it said God never makes uh, going too rough for us whenever we can uh, strive to be with him. The prayer in that is we ask him to remove our fear. Now, this is we've been in the fear inventory. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. So at this point, we're really not asking God what to do. We're asking God to show us what he would have us be. And uh, for me, this is, I was, I was so busy doing uh, what couldn't be. I was a human doer. And what that did was it allowed me not to be able to look at myself. I stayed real busy a lot of the time. Uh, I could get lost in activity. And I think sometimes a lot of people come into Alcoholics Anonymous and do that. They get real active in service, and they, uh, they're in a lot of things and do a lot of things, and they don't take the time to be and to uh, develop that closeness uh, with a power greater than themselves. Now about sex. You always hear the rumbling whenever that talk about. <laughs> You've been waiting all day, huh? Well, just be grateful it's just a day. Uh, I waited a lot longer than that. On the next page. (laughs) I shouldn't have put that on tape. Uh, (laughs) Oh, well. Yeah. What does it say? What's some principles for us dealing with sex? Well, the first thing it says is that we stay out of controversy. On the next page, I'll get into trouble with that mic there. Uh, At the bottom of that paragraph, it says, we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. Who, me? Well, if you do, you don't tell anybody, you know. So I'm not going to be the one to get into that controversy. Um, It's real simple here in the book about what we do about sex in our life and what we do about others' sexual activity. We tend to ours and we stay out of everybody else's. In the middle of the paragraph, of the um, third paragraph, second full paragraph, it says, how for us, it gives us a prayer. And on your paper, it should say, um, fourth step sex, page 59. (laughs) Right. If we don't know what to do, even after the inventory, it says we ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. I couldn't 
I couldn't set my ideals before. I, I can't set my ideals now. I had to really work through that. I came into the program with what I thought were ideals that um, I had fallen short of. When I was growing up and I'd reached that wonderful age of, of uh, puberty, they call it, you know, when the juices are flowing, it wasn't okay to talk about sex. I think they talk more freely today. Children do. Hopefully I had the lines of communication open and my children were able to talk to me about things like that. But it was okay to talk about love. It was not okay <laughs> to be sexual, but it was okay to be lovable and be in love. And so I just fell in and out of love a lot. And when all those juices started flowing in me, I thought that said, you're in love. That's the message that I got. And I had to, I mean, it was a long time before I knew it was different. Well, as a result of that, uh, I become very attracted to someone when I was young, and I ended up getting married when I was 17 years old. And I didn't know about love. I didn't know about sex, for sure. I didn't know about anything. And that just, you know, uh, let me know that I didn't know about all of that. But it was too late then. And uh, it didn't get any better any too soon because four years later I had four kids. And uh, I didn't have any twins. Okay. We get some guidelines here after the prayer. And I think this is something that's... Uh, you know, as a woman, I'm not saying that all women are like this, but for me as a woman, and men probably don't do this. I don't know about men. I just know about me. And um, I don't have a trouble distinguishing about me. Um, it says, Our sex powers are God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. As I was growing up, you know, uh, sex is, is what we are, not necessarily what we do. My sex is female, period. And I, I took my sexuality and I used my sexuality loosely for my own personal gain. And this starts real young with women, the experience with women that I have had. My own children. My, I have three girls. How many in here was daddy's little girl? And knew exactly what to get, how to get what we wanted from daddy. We start using our sexual powers and our sexuality at a very young age to get what we want. I did that. And as we grow up, we just, you know, we just perfect the skill, I think. <laughs> And when I, when I got here, I knew I had a problem with sex. I knew that because the main problem I had was that I thought that my sexuality was a measure of the person that I was. And I came here and found out that it doesn't have anything to do with the person that I am. This was not an overnight thing. The book tells us that this growing that we do is not an overnight thing. 
But so much of my self-worth was wrapped up into how others saw me sexually. And not necessarily uh, just a man. It, it wasn't enough for me to be attractive to a man. It was important for, if he was with a woman, to know that I was attractive enough to get her man. Because it was, that's, you know, was part of my self-worth. I, I thought that's what it was all about. I just didn't know any better. I didn't know that you could have a friendship that did not include sex with a man. I learned that here. And I learned that from the men here, from healthy men, who were willing to be my friend unconditionally, with no strings attached. I didn't know that happened in the real world. It does. But the one thing that I did learn is that there's a lot of sick people here. And I have to set some standards for me. And it become real important that um, since AA was going to be my spiritual growth ground and where I was going to grow spiritually, that I keep my house clean. I, I know women that have uh, literally um, loved themselves out of AA. They can't go in an AA meeting because they've been with every man in the meeting. And if we can't come here, girls, where can we go? I am so grateful that I quit looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> and, and I was able to... Um, find the type of spiritual love, agape love, it's called. And I found that here from you people. I think, I think that's so sad for newcomers that come in. You know, it's, uh, it really is. And our behavior is always an example of AA. And the newcomers are going to do what we do. You know, when I came in, if everybody had been doing that, I probably would have been doing it, too, if I didn't know any better, you know. Uh, we do what we see the others do because we want to be a part of. We've been an outcast. We, we've not been able to get along, and we want to fit in, and we want everything to be a part of, and we're scared. And if you came in here without all those, I want to meet you after the meeting. <laughs> we need to talk about it. <laughs> so I need to be an example of the ideals that I have worked out with God. And uh, I need to keep that on the forefront and not misuse my powers that God has given to me. Then it says after that, we must be willing to make amends where we have done harm. Provided that we do not bring more about still more harm in doing so. Now, it's, it doesn't refer to if. It says where, which tends to make me believe that there's going to be some times when I, I'm still going to do some harm. 
and uh, I'm sure that there was. But the thing about it is, is uh, what happens is that the longer we're here and our ideals maybe change, and the closer that we get to our God, if we give ourselves that time, what happened with me was that I just woke up one morning and I, for some reason I knew that I, I, I couldn't do this anymore. Has that ever happened to anybody? Maybe you're in the middle of the fourth step and you've, uh, you're going through the fourth step and you've done a fifth step and all of a sudden God has revealed that there's some changes that, I mean, you need to make in your life and he changes you right there. And here you got someone off in the wings. What are you going to do with them? They might not understand that. <laughs> I've had that happen <laughs> to me. I've had that happen to women I sponsor. You know, they just know I can't live this way anymore. I cannot live this way anymore. And that's God working in our life. That's what it is. And that can be real scary because then, well, what do I do now? You know, it opens up a whole new set of experiences we have to learn, <laughs> go through. <laughs> but we have a prayer for that so it says in meditation we ask God what we should do about each specific matter and the promise of that prayer is the right answer will come if we want it you know sometimes God changes us he reveals to us that this change is there And we don't want it. And what he leaves with us is free will. And sometimes we freely choose to go against what we know is God's will. And uh, that is really sad. And for those of you who have not experienced that, I hope you never have to experience that. Um, it's, it can be a very painful thing to want to grow spiritually, to want to be close to God, and not want to do what God has for you to do. <laughs> it's a dilemma. <laughs> That's when you get two answers to the same question, and they're both right in your mind. <laughs> It gives us a little more information about how to behave uh, in matters of sex. On the next page, 70, it says, We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. And uh, I'm not sure it means hysterical thinking and hysterical advice, because sometimes it's written up like that. So I just don't do either. (laughs) I just don't give advice. And I try not to think about it. Uh, when it, you know, concerns someone else. I just don't give advice. I don't give advice in my sponsorship. I don't give advice to my children. Uh, I try to share my experience. That's all. That is all. And I always try to remember to say, it is my experience. And if I don't have any experience, I say, I don't have any experience with that. But I think so-and-so does. Maybe we could talk to them. Because 
I try to share my experience. That's all. That is all. And I always try to remember to say, it is my experience. And if I don't have any experience, I say, I don't have any experience with that. But I think so-and-so does. Maybe we could talk to them. Because um, (laughs) right now I have given some instructions to someone that I sponsor. And those instructions were, she's one of these people who sound good in meetings. And she knows how it's done. Uh, She knows, you know, how it's done. And uh, and her instructions that I have given her as her sponsor is you are to talk about nothing in a meeting except your own experience. And the only way you get experience is if you've done it. So you can only talk about what you've done. (laughs) And guess what? She is real quiet in meetings. (laughs) And... This is going to allow her to get in touch with her experience, her experience, and and find out the difference between knowing how it's done and knowing how to do it. (laughs) Okay. We get another prayer. In case we fall short of our ideals. Now, it says that we pray with God to work out our ideals. And then it says uh, in our next prayer, see, we have a lot of prayer in here for sex. Uh, We ask God to help us because, you know, he gives us a lot of prayers, I think, because he knows we're going to have some problems in this area. That would be likely, huh? And so we ask God what to do about every specific matter. And then it tells us right off that that there's a possibility we might fall short of those ideals that we've worked out with God. So what's going to happen then if if that happens? Are we going to get drunk? And it says, well, that's just a half truth. Maybe some say we will get drunk and maybe we won't get drunk, really. But it gives us a prayer in case this happens. It says, if we are sorry for what we have done. So that's the first thing we have to do. We have to be sorry for what we've done. And have an honest, the honest desire to let God take us to better things. We believe we will be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson. And the only way that I have ever learned a lesson is through a consequence that I have paid. Uh, we don't often learn from mistakes. We only learn from the consequences we pay due to our mistakes. That's why a consequence is a learning tool. And when we were young, maybe our, children, our parents uh, punished us or something like that, and we were able to learn from that. But today, usually, the consequences we pay are much greater. And that's how we learn, is from the consequences we pay. It gives us a warning right after that prayer about what if we're not sorry. If we are not sorry for our, and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. So here's another, another little checkpoint here that uh, a slipper might be able to check on and ask himself, you know, what was going on? Was I have a problem with sex? You know, there's all kind of things that can lead us back to the drink. And the, the deal is we don't drink because of that. That's just an excuse. We drink because we are alcoholics and because we, we cannot stand the pain that our own behavior gets us in most of the time. And we know once the alcohol has relieved that pain, we always know how to relieve that pain. 
It's there. It's on our mind. It's there. Whether we think about it or not. And the thing about it is, is no matter how much we know we shouldn't take the drink, there is that mental blank spot. And nothing will take that away from us. So that's why we have to rely on that power greater than ourselves. And when we continue to behave in a manner that uh, is against the principles that we are to live by these days, that's when we begin to get into trouble. That's why this program is about change. That's what it's about. The process of the steps allow, allow us to be changed so that we can quit doing all that stuff. If sex is very troublesome in the middle of the next paragraph, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. So that's the solution to our sex problems. That's a pretty simple solution, huh? This takes us out of ourselves. This is a promise of what this is going to do for us. This takes us out of ourselves. It quites the imperilous urge when to yield would mean heartache. And you see, that's telling us again that to yield to these, to these things and, and act against our principles, that's where the heartache comes in from. It's because we're behaving in a manner against the principles that we have freely chosen to live by these days. That's why the road gets so narrow. You know, other people can lie a little bit, cheat a little bit, steal a little bit, screw around a little bit, and it doesn't matter. They don't get into trouble. But we as alcoholics can't do that. In the next paragraph, we get some more promises. Now, we've gone through some principles. We've gone through some prayers. We've gotten the warnings of, of this, just this sex inventory. Now we get some more promises. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. And then a principle, for we look on them as sick people. I used to have a problem with relating to people that acted like that or, you know, I'd get a resentment. I mean, they just had such bad, inappropriate behavior. That's how I like to call that. Um, that it was, it was real hard for me to see that as being sick. You know, sick to me meant you had a temperature or you went in the hospital or, you know, you needed chicken soup, that kind of stuff. <laughs> But the book explains that this is a spiritual illness. And a lot of people other than us have spiritual illness. And it's, it's when they are spiritually sick that that's being talked about. And we can look on these people just like they were just, you know, they're, they're spiritually ill, but it's still an illness nonetheless. Another promise in the next paragraph is... Um, It says, in this book you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. And uh, he does that through our faith. A lot of times um, in the beginning, I did not act on faith. I just acted... Uh, through taking what I call uh, taking a risk 
and and the way this worked, and anyone that I've sponsored a talk with knows knows how the process goes. It's like I make make a decision that I'm going to take a risk on God, and God had to reveal Himself, and kind of like He gave me opportunities to reveal Himself to me. And the way I would do this is something would come up and I'd I'd reach that point when I just, you know, I couldn't make a decision or I was so scared I just couldn't make decisions. The only way I could make a decision whether, you know, was have a glass of wine or something. I mean, I have made major decisions that have changed our whole life, my children's life, over a couple of glasses of wine with dinner. I mean, traumatic things. Jank my children out of school and go off to Arizona. Within a week's time. I mean, it was sick. Never giving a thought to what was going to happen to them. You know, I, I wasn't, I really wasn't drinking then. I went to dinner with someone and had a couple of glasses of wine. And he talked about doing that and it sounded like a good idea. And next week I was in Arizona, broke, and he was gone. And then I was really in trouble. <laughs> and uh, that's how I acted. That's, that was my behavior at that time. And I didn't drink again for a long, long time. But bought those two glasses of wine sure did it to me. But it was his fault. <laughs> Can y'all relate, ladies? It's his fault. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It wasn't the wine. Okay. We're into action now. And this is, this is a chapter that goes fast. And it's... Um, it's a real good, I like this chapter. <laughs> and basically, it starts off um, telling us how we're going to do a, a fifth step. Uh, we're, we're through the fourth step now, and we're going to, uh, yeah, we're through the fourth step now. And we have this big, uh, we have this big inventory, and when I say big, if yours wasn't, that's wonderful. It'll get better next time. Don't feel slighted. Uh, because it says that we ascertained in a rough way. That means we did the best we could at the time. Um, So what happens is we have this inventory, and uh, the book says in the middle of the page, now in step five, I found eight promises from the uh, fifth step. It says this brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapters And then in the next paragraph, in the middle of the page, it says um, that there are, um, okay, it says, we will be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reason why we should do so. So if you're saying, I don't know why I need to do this, this is what Bill says. He says, the best reason first. Now, he's going to give us the best reason first, but that means to me that there are other reasons, too. That's just the best reason. And it says, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. I have seen many, many people go out again at this point in the steps because they are just unwilling to do that fourth and fifth step, or they might do do the fourth step to what they say is the best of their ability, but then they're not willing to go to another human being in God and give that fifth step. 
And the thing about it is, is that the fifth step is really just an action that, I mean, it just does. It says that we have to tell someone everything. We have to do that. And it's, it's not because the other person really wants to know all that stuff. I can assure you, if you've ever heard a fifth step, for me, God has always taken care of that. When the person is gone, the fifth step is gone. And somebody might come and said, remember when I said this or that and the other? And I can assure you, I don't. Uh, it's like I'm just, I'm there. And uh, where I am, though, with them is in the fourth step, is in the fourth column. Because that's where I, I can be a, a help to them. That's where I can help them differentiate the true from the false. That's where I can help them see what was their part. Not because I'm an expert, because most of the time the only thing that I'm expert on is my own faults. And I see my faults. <laughs> I get to see my faults again. Maybe not all of them, but they're so much alike, you know, <laughs> that I can say, well, that sounds like you were a little grandiose. Or maybe you were a little jealous. No, that sounds like envy to me. The book gives us five things to look for, but I have to get a little more specific sometimes. Um, it tells us, uh, gives us some examples of how, where to go to give this fifth step. And it's on uh, page 74, and it starts off... Um, it says, it, first of all, it says, uh, starting on the other page, it says, we must be entirely honest with someone if we are to live long and happily in this world. So I think it would be very hard to live a long time if I couldn't be a little happy anyway. So that's two things, two reasons why we have to tell someone else, not just to live long and stop drinking but there's some other reasons there's some more of those reasons to live long or happily in the world that's another reason to do it now the ones that the examples that it says we might go to to someone in the religion we might go to a closed mouth understanding friend we might go to a doctor or a psychologist then Bill's kind of scratching the bottom of the barrel. He says, well, if you, know, if you can't find any of those, you might want to go to someone in your own family. Uh, I, think, I think the biggest thing is um, the next one when it says, someone who will understand yet be unaffected. And this is, this is a real principle for, uh, for me. Because uh, especially as I grow in the program and I get... I get to meet more people and uh, more people become a part of my life. It's that part that says yet be unaffected. I don't want to share anything on an inventory that might have an effect on the person that I'm sharing with. And that can come about in various ways, especially if someone that I go to is having a relationship with someone that might happen to be on my fourth step list. I would not want to share about that. And, uh, and they give us some, uh, some exceptions to the rule about sharing our fourth step with more than one person. Because it tells us that we wouldn't want to, you know, that these, thing, these things that might affect someone else, we might want to go to someone else with that. 
Now, when I when I have a, a workshop in my house and I have the women over, we we do um, group fifth steps. Newcomers are not too happy to do this, so we we uh, we give them a choice, and we we say, well, if you would choose not to do that in in the group, you know, we understand. The requirement to be in one of my workshops is that uh, you have a sponsor. You cannot come without a sponsor because we believe that you need a sponsor to go through the steps and to help you with it. So you must have a sponsor, uh, not necessarily in the workshop that's, that's, that I'm having, but uh, that's so that when it gets to the parts that you need to have a sponsor with, you have one. And um, what we do usually with the fifth step is that we just um, we share what we feel we can in the group, making sure that what we say in the group, that no one in the group will be affected by what we have to share. And the things that uh, that we feel may affect someone in the group, we share only with our sponsor. And most of the time our sponsor is in the group. it has really made a difference in my sobriety to be able to do this in a group setting like that. And uh, it's brought a closeness among the women that I sponsor and the women that they sponsor. Uh, and I think it's just been an enrichment to our, to our sobriety. It gives us a loophole for, uh, for giving a fifth step. If we can't find any of these people, it says, notwithstanding the great necessity for discussing ourselves with someone, it may be it may be one is so situated that there is no suitable person available. And anyone who's using this to keep from doing a fifth step is in trouble. They are living dangerously. Um, I don't I, I see no reason today. Maybe at that time. This was an, a, a legitimate reason for not doing your fifth step once you had a fourth step written. But I see that as just a, an excuse today. Uh, even if your sponsor is not available, there's a lot of good people that would be willing to hear your fifth step. Um, I've already talked about there's really no... Um, word in the book about sponsorship but from time to time there's there's examples of sponsorship and uh, this is one of the parts of the book that I find gives an example of uh, how to look for a sponsor in case you're uh, you're you might be doing that it says um, we if you're looking it says and we're looking for someone to give a fifth step If that is so, this step can be postponed only, however, if we hold ourselves in complete readiness to go through with it at first opportunity. We say this because we are very anxious to find the right person, that we talk to the right person. And, And for our sponsor, we're very anxious to make sure that we have the right person that we can talk to. So what's the qualifications for this person? It is important that he be able to keep a confidence. This would be very important if I was looking for a sponsor. That he fully understand and approve of what we are driving at. That he will not try to change our plan. But we must not use this as a mere excuse to postpone. Uh, and this is important whether I'm looking for a sponsor or looking for someone to tell a fifth step to. I was faced with uh, having to look for another sponsor a couple of years ago. 
And I was looking hard because, you know, after you get a few years of sobriety, you can't just get anybody. I mean, you've got to get someone that's worthy of you. And, uh, <laughs> of course, I wanted someone that did it my way because <laughs> I didn't want to change my way. But in a, I had to go back to the basics. And uh, at the time, it was important that I have someone uh, with the qualifications that stated, that stated right here in the book. And in addition to that, it was someone who had to be active in AA, not necessarily in service, but that went to meetings on a regular basis and knew what the program was about. Uh, it was important that it was someone that uh, had a sponsor and that had worked the steps. I don't want us. I work the steps. That's how I continue to grow spiritually. So I wanted someone that uh, had a sponsor and, and worked the steps and had a sponsor that worked the steps because that's how I'm able to continue to grow. I need that in my life. And I was able to do that. And I, I found uh, um, a little lady that has a, quite a few years sobriety now and her sponsor is long distance, and but she she used to have a little workshop in her house, just like I have in my house from time to time, and it's it's good. And whenever we talk, we understand each other. There's nothing worse than to talk the language of AA and have the other person that's supposed to be in AA not understand you. That's I mean, it's like that you're talking two different languages. Okay, on page 75, we have found just the right person now. And uh, it says, we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. This is the first promise. We are delighted of the fifth step. And um, these are the promises that come from taking the fifth step. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at peace, perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall away from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual reliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. This is the only place where we get the opportunity to rest. And it's stated that, and we get that for one hour. We get to rest for one hour. And Bill writes it as, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for one hour. And immediately he tells us what to do in that hour. He doesn't say, go home and take a bubble bath. Or he doesn't say, i got to run and pick up the kids. So I try to schedule fifth steps so at least you can take 15 or 20 minutes, even if you have to go in my bedroom, and be quiet with your God. Because what we do in that hour is, for one thing, is a prayer. It says carefully reviewing what we have done. And that's the fifth step and the rest of the steps. It says that we pray, and this is, in the prayer, 
one important reason for doing the fifth step, another reason. It gave the best reason first. But then it says in this prayer, we thank God from the bottom of our hearts that we know him better. And this says to me that every time I do a fifth step, I should come away knowing my God a little better. When I first did the steps, it was to get further away from my last drink. But today I do the steps to get closer to my God. And that's the process that I do. Uh, The process of the steps helps me to get closer to my God and helps me to get to know him better. After that, after the prayer, it says, taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. So we go back to that page where it has the 12 steps, carefully reading the first five proposals. That's the first five steps. We ask if we have omitted anything. For we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man. So once again, it says that we're going to have freedom once we're through with this. We're not going to have relief. It gives us some questions to ask. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put in the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar out of sand? Out of sand? Now back on page uh, 17... If y'all would like to refer back to that. Uh, we have some things that we can check on to see if, uh, if we've skipped, skimped on the cement put in the foundation. Um, let's see. Oh, where's my real book? <laughs> Uh, okay, it says, but, but that in itself, in other words, the, the fellowship that we have, he's talking about from the, from the ship that sank, these people that have a common problem. Uh, it says, but that in itself would not have been enough. It says that we have the solution. So the solution we know is, is the 12 steps. And we've learned, and I didn't go over that, but really what the cement is, And the formula for the cement is the correct amount of fellowship and program. We have to have both. And we have to have some service in there. And we we find that in the circle and triangle. And that's what makes us hold when we have unity, service, and uh, recovery all together. So we have three equal parts. And if we can honestly ask ourselves if we have all of that and we've done the best we can on the first five proposals and we can answer to our satisfaction, I I get a lot of girls that ask me, you know, like it's like they have to answer to my satisfaction and I have to let them know, no, it's you answer that to your satisfaction. I don't you know, I'm not there to judge you. Uh, It was so funny because at one time uh, I was sponsoring someone and after she she went upstairs and she did her little reading and she rested for a little while before she was going to leave. When she came down, she said, well, I guess this is the time if I've left anything out, I need to tell you, huh? (laughs) I said, well, this would be a good time since you're here. (laughs) And so she was able to finish her fifth step at that time (laughs) and uh, and go on from there. So we uh, we give we've gotten a little reprieve there. You know, it, it, we get to ask these questions and we get to answer them ourselves.
and make a decision on if we need to add anything to it at that time. The next page. At the top of the page, we're getting to the sixth step. And uh, it says in here, excuse me, I think we're going to take a break. Is this where we said we'd take a break right here? Okay, we're going to take a break right here. Okay, we're on um, step six at the top of the page. Okay. Page uh, 76. Now, if you've, if you've noticed, Bill, Bill worked about, uh, had about four chapters on, uh, on the first two steps. And uh, so he, he really must have thought that was really important. And I don't think that one step is more important than the other ones. I just think that it was really important to, for us to become convinced. And uh, the rest of the steps are real, laid out with real specific instructions, and it just didn't take a lot of room to write them down. That's how I feel about that. So if you're thinking just because on step 76, uh, we get steps 6, 7, 8, and 9. So there's four steps on one page, in less than one page, really, just in about three paragraphs. And uh, for the, the sixth step, I'm going to read the whole paragraph. It says, if we can answer to our satisfaction, and that's the questions that they've asked us about the fifth step. We've done a fifth step now, and uh, it gave us our hour and what we were supposed to do. So now it says, if we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. So we do not even look at step six until we can answer the questions to our satisfaction. And that, remember that we're dealing with honesty here. And we're, we're working, maybe if this is your first time, to get further away from your drink. It's going to ensure your sobriety. But uh, I think it's important for me to remember now, since I have a few 24 hours since my last drink, that I am, I am trying to improve my conscious contact with God. So there'd be no reason for me to, uh, to not be able to answer these questions honestly, if that's my purpose. Um, So it says, then we look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? So basically, what step six does is just helps us become willing we're going to get a prayer here to become willing for God to remove the things that we find objectionable because we have put our fingers on the things that are that we find objectionable in our life and we're willing for God to remove those but in the seventh step we go a little further from that the only thing we have to go on is what we find are objectionable. Maybe God doesn't find what we find objectionable. He might not find that objectionable. The prayer for that is, if we can't become willing, 
the sixth step prayer is, if we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. And uh, I'm going to talk about something that is not in the book. But I believe that there are some spiritual exercises. You know, there's, there's exercises to help us become physically fit. And there are exercises that we can do to help us become uh, mentally fit. Or if you're a mathematician, there are exercises to help you with that. I believe that there are things that we can do, exercise that I call spiritual exercises, that help me grow spiritually and become stronger spiritually. And this is strictly a spiritual exercise that I suggest to the women that I sponsor because it has worked for me. And uh, it's been my experience when they do this, it helps and it works for them. And what I do is I make a willingness list. And what all that is is a list of my character defects, the things that I have found objectionable. And I got that from my fourth column. And like I said, I have to be real specific. And it goes, uh, see, when we're making, when we're making our... Uh, doing our fourth step it uh, it gives us the things that we look for let's refer back to that just a minute um, there's the fourth step and what page is it on Donna? 64. right okay uh, on this page I didn't touch on this but maybe I ought to do that if I'm going to explain the sixth step okay there's seven things here that we're going to look for and uh, it starts on uh, on page 64 at the bottom, it says, we ask ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, we found that our self-esteem, our pocketbook, our ambition, our personal relationships, including sex, were threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. In other words, that's another expression for we had a red ass. That's what I like to say. And, uh, and then in addition to that, it gives us also uh, pride that's down at the bottom there of the right-hand column. So that's the seven things that we look for in the, uh, in the third column. And then it tells us that we turn back to our book again, to our list, referring to our list again, and that's on page 67. It says, putting out of our minds wrongs others had done us, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. And these are the mistakes that we look for in the fourth column. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. So what we do in the sixth step in this spiritual exercise that I do is um, from that fourth column, I look at where I was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. And sometimes I break that down because they say that all of our character defects can fall into those four things. But also, I like to be specific because it's, it's talked about that we need to get down to causes and effects. And I have learned that a lot of times maybe something that happened years ago affect me today and how I behave today. Now, it doesn't mean that it's the other person's fault. It just means that it still affects me. (laughs) 
my behavior, I am responsible for my behavior. So it's my fault. And I can look at my list and I can say, well, I was very envious. And and I see that as a character defect. And so I look at the things that I find objectionable and I write them down in addition to these four. I was envious. I was grandiose. One of my greatest defects is that I tend to be very self-righteous. And uh, I pray often for that to be removed. And for some reason, God does not seem to think that that needs to go away as much as I do. Because it will come up again. Uh, I don't uh, covet much anymore. There's very few things that I don't have that I think that I should have. Because today I know that I have more, much more than I deserve in my life. Uh, I have learned through this process that this is not a program of justice. It's a program of mercy. And God has given me his grace and mercy through my, through my life of, uh, of sobriety. After I have my list of, uh, of character defects, I add this to my, um, to my meditation, my prayer and meditation. And uh, at night, I can, uh, when I do my prayer at night, I ask God, uh, I carry that, and I ask God for me to become willing. Because there's just, sometimes there's just some things I'm not willing to let go of, to give to him. Because they serve me well, as far as I see sometimes. Uh, And uh, I was told one time I had a silver tongue, and it wasn't meant as a compliment. And uh, I always thought that served me well, because I, I was quick at wit and sarcasm, and I could cut someone down with just a flick of the tongue real fast without any thought to the damage that I was doing. I just, I really didn't look at the damage I was doing to them. I was looking at the way I thought it made, I thought it made me look good. And I know that's not true because very rarely, if I'm taking advantage of a situation to make myself look good, I, I'm causing harm to someone else. That's just been my experience in my own life. That's what, how it works. So I have my list and, and I, it's in front of me, and I make that a, a part of my uh, of my prayer and meditation at night, and uh, until I become willing. And sometimes I don't become willing all at the same time for everything. And I don't have to wait to go into the seventh step. Once I am willing, if I'm willing for half, then I scratch those off and I leave the other ones, and I go on and do a seventh step with those. And the next one is, so we've, I have that little list, and we ask God, we have the prayer for willingness, and um, I think I have that title uh, for change or six-step prayer, something like that. I don't remember how I've got it done. Six-step, yeah, page 76. And uh, so then I can go into the seventh step. And uh, in the book, the only thing that we have is a prayer, but it, it really says a lot And I'll read it first. It says, My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Now in this prayer, it tells God that I'm willing that he take all of me. 
So I don't separate what I think is good and bad. I don't separate my non-character defects from my character defects. I give it all to him. And uh, through a fourth step, I think what this did for me more than anything, it allowed me to see me. It showed me some truth, exactly like the step reads. It's a moral inventory, and moral means truth. So there are some good things about me. And any time that I'm not seeing the truth, that is still self-centeredness. If I think I'm all bad or all good, then that's still self-centeredness. And I can use either one. There's still a character defect on either end of the spectrum for me. The next thing in it, it says, um, I ask God to remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to him and my fellows. Which makes me believe that maybe he may think some of them are useful Maybe I think they're not useful, and maybe I don't like them, and maybe I find them objectionable. But maybe he sees that, you know, they can be useful, and uh, I don't have to figure that out. You see, in the beginning, I thought the solution to these character defects was I was going to work hard enough to get rid of I was going to be the, the power that was going to get rid of that. I really did. And the way I was going to do that, if I was going, if I was a selfish person, I was going to go around doing unselfish things. But what happened about that? I was doing unselfish for unselfish things for a purpose. <laughs> I was not doing it unconditionally. I was doing it to get rid of the selfishness. And what happened was, I just walked around frustrated doing unselfish things, staying selfish person. <laughs> and so the character defect. I was not removing my character defect. I have come to know that I cannot work hard enough on any one of my character defects to make them go away. The only way they go away is for them to be removed. I am powerless for them to remove them myself. Only God can do that for me. Then it reminds us that, um, oh yes. It has a prayer, a little prayer in here, inside this prayer. Sometimes that's all I can pray. It says, God, give me strength. Just give me strength. In here, it refers to, as I go out from here to do your bidding. And then we get the amen. So I see that this is the conclusion of the prayer that I started in the third step. Because this is the first time that amen comes uh, from between the third step and here. So I see that as a continuous prayer. Now we need action and more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. This is about the second or third time that we've heard that. I hadn't counted that up yet. So it says, let's look at step eight and nine. Now, we get both of these steps in one paragraph here, and there's uh, 14 promises that come with this. So we're going to look at these steps, and it starts off, it says, We have a list of all persons we have harmed to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. But remember when Bill talks about 
in, uh, in Bill's story, and it talks about how he did amends. He said that he had a list of the people he had harmed and those he had made had resentments against. So he saw those as two different things. So actually, our A-step list is made up from the list that we have, because as we're going through our fifth step, it's good to make little notes on our fifth step of, of the harm we've done to the people we have resentments again. And then it's ready for us whenever we get ready to make an eighth step. But then the next sentence says, we subjected ourselves to drastic self-appraisal. And I see that as where I add to my eighth step list. Because there's people in my life that I harmed that I had no resentment against. I had no reason to harm them. I just harmed them through my inappropriate behavior. Because I was so self-centered and selfish in my life that all I was looking out for was what was the best thing for Danny. And if people around me that loved me and cared for me or my children got hurt, I, I was totally unaware of that. And even if I'd have been aware of it, you know, I wouldn't have admitted it or it would not have made any difference. It just wouldn't have. I gave no thought whatsoever to, to what I was doing to my children when I uprooted them. We were in Baton Rouge at that time and, and went uh, took that geographical cure out to the middle of our thing. It was like another world and just plopped us down in the middle of the desert. It was, I mean, bad, <laughs> real bad. And I never gave any thought. Now, from that, a lot of people, I had to really subject myself to self, to drastic self-appraisal. I gave no thought. In fact, if I caused their father any harm, he deserved it. That's why I left to start with, to get away from him. They had two grandmothers. I never told anybody where I was going. It never occurred to me that they would be concerned or care what happened to us I had family they had school they had their friends you see the only person I really and I had a lot of good motives be careful of those motives <laughs> uh, you know it is real easy for me to hide about, hide behind all of that well I was doing the best thing for them I was, I had a sacrifice too, you know. So I had a sacrifice. I chose that. But I chose all of that for all of them too. So this is the point where I had to really subject myself to that, that uh, drastic self-appraisal and appraise my actions through my life. And the people that I may have harmed. Not because I had a resentment. But just because I was so wrapped up into self you see, it says that our what happens is we we use and abuse our our uh, God-given instincts. That's where our character defects come from. The only thing that matters is me, and I do whatever I have to to take care of me. And I usually have very good motives for doing that. That can include everything from a job to a relationship, whether it's a friend relationship or the the Oh, well, how's this? You know, well, this is just the best thing for the group. And when really, sometimes maybe we have to look at that. Maybe it's going to make us look good, or maybe we're in a power struggle. It's easy for us to hide behind motives, what we see as good motives. Uh, so anyway, after doing that, and we have our list, 
uh, all we do with this list is um, it says uh, we become willing to make the amends. Uh, somebody said one time that we don't have to, this 